Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Ewing's Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Ewing's Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. Artists, take your art business to the next level even during the pandemic. Register for the Virtualize Your Art Career Conference October 19th through the 30th. This multi-session virtual interactive learning accelerator enables artists to blueprint their career, as opposed to just letting things happen or not, develop a winning sales strategy, craft a more effective brand narrative, and begin developing and leveraging a broad peer network as well-known artists do. The conference is delivered through live streaming video workshops and discussions. It's presented by seasoned business leaders who specialize in working with creative professionals. Register at clarkhealingsfund.org slash conference. That's clarkhealingsfund.org slash conference. Thanks to Jerry's Artorama for supporting CHF and this episode of the Thriving Artist Podcast. Jerry's passion is to serve artists, so visit jerrysartorama.com. That's www.jerrysartorama.com. Now, our topic for this episode is virtualizing your art career. And to that end, I've asked Carolyn Edlin, the Sales and Events Director at the Clark Healings Fund, and our resident subject matter expert in sales strategy to join us and answer some questions about taking a career virtual or more fully virtual. Carolyn is the co-founder of Artsy Shark, a popular blog that publishes features on artist portfolios and articles on the business of art, and the former executive director of the Arts Business Institute. An artist herself, Carolyn pivoted to sales in the art publishing business. She learned the world of price points, merchandising, building collections, and closing deals by working a territory and becoming a top rep. And she's designed curriculum for multiple art business platforms and has presented hundreds of live seminars to artists and makers. Welcome to the show, Carolyn. It's really great having you. Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for uh, inviting me. Now, uh, you're the sales and event director of CHF, the Clark Healings Fund, as I mentioned. Just a personal question about that. What interests you about that role? Wow. Um, you know, I think what really drives me as far as working with artists is being able to interact with them, speak to them, uh, convey information and knowledge to them, hear their responses, and just see the progress that they make. I love that personal contact. I realize in this day and age, it's going to be virtual, but I love the event part of it. So I'd say I'm kind of hooked on that. And when Clark Ewing's Fund asked me to join the staff and, and travel the country with you and, and uh, participate in the campus with you, I was thrilled to take you up on this opportunity. Yeah, I got to say, it's a lot of fun. It's kind of like a big bus of joy. We go from you know, one city to another city and, and teach creative professionals how to build more successful businesses for themselves and thrive in changing times. And, uh, and certainly the current time we're in is, is no exception. So to that end, I want to ask you about something. The, the Hiscox Online Art Trade Report 2020, one of the big sources of art world data, says that, quote, COVID-19 could kickstart the long-awaited digital transformation, unquote. And then it also says, quote, for most traditional art world operators, the pandemic has exposed an overdependence on traditional channels, uh, in parenthesis, physical art fairs, gallery exhibitions, auctions, etc. And online presence is more likely now than ever before to keep the art world afloat, unquote. 
So we're all already aware of this in general, uh, but let's get into the specifics about what you're seeing and how individual artists might leverage this to their advantage. My first question is this, are there opportunities that artists have now that are particularly unique to this moment in time? I think so. And I think it's because artists are being pushed into getting online and really becoming experts at communicating and selling online. We don't have much of a choice. You know, the events are closed, postponed, canceled. They're not happening in person. And as wonderful as in-person events are, and, uh, it, you know, we've traditionally relied on them, just like Hiscox noted, it, it, but this is a transformation. We've been moving towards an online economy, uh, an art industry that is robust in the online space. And this is forcing the issue. So we've known for years that artists needed to get a website. They need to have an online strategy. And they've got to understand how do things actually work on the Internet? How do you present, talk about your work, close a sale, build a network, and so forth? This is putting people in that kind of sink or swim position where you've got to make some decisions. You, you aren't going to change your whole life, but you've got to make some decisions about you know, getting into the online market and making it work for you. And so that, to me, is a huge opportunity. It might not be something that every artist is looking forward to, but ultimately they will really benefit from. So are there art buying price points or buyer demographics, uh, you know, that are on the upswing, you know, particular sizes of work or price points or, or methodologies for, for delivery? Well, I would say, yeah, as far as, as uh, selling online, there, there is a sweet spot. Now, if you look at the Hiscox report, which is really geared towards the high-end market, you'll see that their price points are going to be a little bit higher. But as far as what I have seen for uh, artists selling their work direct online, we're looking at a sweet spot, generally um, a few hundred dollars up to maybe $2,500. I would say it is a good average. Uh, it's not going to be true for everyone, but um, I've seen that kind of a spread. Can you sell a $10,000 painting online? Well, maybe you can, but I think it's less likely. I think people uh, have a certain risk uh, tolerance that they're willing to spend online uh, with sight unseen. Now, as far as sizes and formats, I'm a big fan of the small works that have become very popular in the past year or two. Uh, small works are easy to ship, they're lightweight. Um, they can give the artist the opportunity to sell an original work of art, not a reproduction that is at a little bit lower price point while still keeping their pricing formula intact. And many times uh, small works are ready to hang. So they're really a convenient size for shipping, for giving as a gift, they're easy to purchase, and it just makes things go a little more smoothly. All right, so a couple of questions about that. Uh, one is, are you suggesting, you know, if I'm a career artist and I make X amount of dollars per year selling works that typically do go for 10,000 and above, 
are you suggesting that it's not just smaller works or, or lower price point works, but it's higher volume? And then I need to think in terms of volume. And secondly, what do you say to somebody that's saying, look, nothing I make uh, have I sold or do I sell for less than, you know, six or seven grand? Sure. That's an interesting question. And I actually got a similar question the other day when I was speaking with a group as to, well, is it safer to have lower price points and a big spread and all kinds of lower end products? Or what if you only make a, a few pieces of art a year and they're high end? Uh, should you stick with that? Well, I think the answer is really going to depend on the artist. I don't know that there is a correct answer. Um, if you're looking for volume, I would say a price point spread and even a spread in, in the format that you're offering is not a bad idea, but let's say you're a mid-career artist and you're working with, you know, sculpture that's five, six, seven, ten thousand dollars and up. Do you really want to start making something totally different? I would say no. I think that during the pandemic, while things are closed, things are not happening in the normal flow, I don't suggest that artists make uh, dramatic changes or life-changing decisions. If you've got a body of work that's higher priced, then I would say it's likely that you have a group of collectors, contacts that might include, you know, corporate buyers or curators or uh, galleries that you've worked with who are still doing business to some extent or may still purchase from you. In fact, um, I heard the other day that public art is doing really, really well these days, and that may involve large and expensive things. So I don't know that there is an across-the-board recommendation. I think it's what is right for you. Uh, but if you're an artist, maybe a 2D artist selling online, you're really looking to ramp up your online sales, if it was me, I'd probably experiment with some price point spreads, not only going lower and smaller and with reproductions, but I might even throw some expensive pieces out there online and see if that might work for me, too. Okay, so on the one hand, you said be careful of big life-changing decisions. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we're saying that you might need to rethink your sales strategy at a time like this, uh, part of the idea of virtualizing your careers, it might not all already be fully virtualized. So in responding to sort of, you know, the culture of remote work, um, everything going to the cloud, people not returning to the office, et cetera, um, we're looking at possible sales strategy uh, changes or rethinking that uh, for individual artists. They're going to be different and unique for each artist. But how do you commit to rethinking a sales strategy precisely in a time as uncertain as this time. I mean, you shift and and the culture shifts again or shifts or evolves faster and farther. How do you, how do you, do you change? Do you not change? You know, how do you, how do you make this decision? I would say that ultimately as an artist, if you truly understand the foundation of your business. So you, you know what your objectives are. You know what your story is. You know who your customers are. And you've got a well-formed sales strategy, which has worked over time for you. You will not abandon that strategy. 
you will hold fast and you'll say, you know, maybe the corporate market is really a great space for you. You're not going to abandon that, but you may consider during this time adding some streams of income that are going to augment your core strategy to make additional sales or to maybe open you up to a new audience. Okay, so let's get some clarity about, you know, terminology, et cetera. So when I think of virtualizing one's uh, career or art career, I don't necessarily, but I think a lot of people do think immediately of, okay, we're talking about being online. We're talking about a website. We're talking about e-commerce. Are there, are those the same thing? Virtualizing your career, is that the same thing as, as being online and, and sort of having an e-commerce or is there more to it or a broader range of options than simply, you know, launching a store or something? I think there's going to be a range. For some people, it may only be that they get a website and then they're continuing on with what they've been doing for years. For other artists, virtualizing means new formats. For example, you might be an artist who teaches. You're not going to be teaching in person right now, but you might be building courses on an online learning platform. You might be teaching through YouTube. If you are an artist who typically offers reproductions or is considering it, you might take advantage of print-on-demand technology, and that's going to allow you to simply upload a high-res image of the painting that you want to sell, and then allowing those print-on-demand vendors to take the order and fulfill it without you being a part of that process. So that would be taking advantage of virtual tools uh, to actually produce. Um, and then there are, are certainly other ways that, um, that we can use tools to work in the studio. I don't think it's virtualizing because it is in real life, but certainly there are many tools that can make artists more productive, like 3D printing and uh, sublimation printing. Um, but those could be used whether you are selling online or not. So, you know, as we as we broaden that understanding of what it means to virtualize or, or to do digital or cloud or online in, in some regard, um, you know, and I, I think especially in the areas of people teaching online or offering some sort of class and people selling via an e-commerce vehicle, is there a downside to all of these artists suddenly committing to selling online or teaching online at the same time? Or, um, or you're not worried about that because there is some perhaps magic way to cut through the clutter. Yeah, I think, I think you're right that it becomes very crowded when everyone's jumping online. And we know that's true because uh, art website providers are reporting just record number of new clients coming in. They all want to set up websites. I think that what is true now with trying to get attention online is what has always been true. And that is as an artist who has an online presence, might be selling product there, might be selling services there, you need to find a way to differentiate yourself to get attention because your voice, your story, your work is compelling. 
you're presenting it in a way that's professional and intriguing to uh, people who are online. You know, there, there are many other artists who are out there looking for attention as well. And there's many other things that people could pay attention to. They don't have to look at your art website. They could just turn on Netflix and watch a movie. So anyone who is online, anyone who's in the virtual marketplace has to kind of fight for attention, you know, uh, establish that space, gather the people who are their followers, either through social media profiles or a list that they've built um, so that they can continue that conversation and then use those interested people to turn into customers and clients. You know, it's interesting that you, you mentioned differentiating yourself through your brand story, mapping out sort of a unique uh, career path and, and making your sales strategy work for the, the type of career you want to you want to have, um, because that's also what um, the virtual art career, the virtualize your art career conference that we mentioned at the start of the show is about. So I just want to remind the audience um, that as you listen to this podcast, you can reserve your seat at the virtualize your art career conference by registering at clarkhealingsfund.org slash conference because some of these topics I'm hearing Carolyn mention or um, or or deal with today are likely to come up there as well. Now Carolyn, we may overemphasize the pandemic. You know, uh, it's almost it drones on and on to the point that that Google has sort of banned the word pandemic as a, a search engine optimization option. You, you know, you write an article about the pandemic and you're not going to you're not going to show up uh, unless you're the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal um, because people are going, yeah, everything's pandemic. But as we deal with the pandemic, it's not really just the pandemic uh, that we're facing. Um, it's not even really recovery. Um, because people think, well, when we recover, everything will go back to normal. But that's not true either, because the sheer inertia, if not pressure, of virtualization, of the growth of digital, of the growth of digital venues and digital behavior, buying online, that was happening before the pandemic. It's been accelerating, of course, uh, during the pandemic, um, but it, it will continue after the pandemic. Um, and there won't be a return to normal. There'll be a new normal. So if one thinks of it that way, is there really such a thing as a pandemic-proof business, one that cannot be rocked by something like this or an equally powerful disruption? Or, or if so, how does one build such a business? I actually think there is. You know, I mentioned earlier, don't make any life-altering decisions during the pandemic when you're galleries are closed and they can't sell anyway. So don't decide to leave them if, you know, unless they reopen and you, and you make the decision when it's, it's timely for you. But um, in a way, I think it's like investing in the stock market. You'll hear the investment managers say, so you're invested in the stock market and it's going down and things are bad. Well, hold fast because it will come back up again. And I think that that's true. So that when we have a core strategy, and we certainly teach that at the Clark Schulings Fund, we, we you know, emphasize this, we, we put our fellows through this, the, the core strategy, knowing who they are, what they're selling, what they're doing, why people should buy from them, what is their long-term strategy. I believe 
for the most part, that will not change. However, when you've got something that comes up, and this is not short-term, the pandemic's been with us for six months, you may change some of the things that you do and some of the actions that you take, but it is all still in alignment with your core strategy. And I, I just want to mention an experience that I had yesterday that I think really reinforced this for me, and that was that I was on a Zoom call with some of our Clark Ewing Fund fellows from the past two years. And these are mid-career artists who are very serious. They're full-time. They've been selling. They have very ambitious plans. And uh, I was speaking to three or four of them in a group. What's going on? What has changed? What have you been doing over the summer? You know, how, you know, how, how have things been happening for you? And there have been some major changes. There have been people who said, oh, my gosh, a huge event was supposed to happen. It did not happen. Or I have these connections I was hoping to get a museum show with, but they don't answer their phone. They may not even be in business anymore. Or, you know, I wasn't able to do what I had planned all summer, so I had to change. Now, when we spoke with those artists and asked them, has your main strategy changed? The answer is no. Every single one of those people, and they represent a diverse uh, number of businesses, mediums, and so forth, every single one of those people was rock solid on what they knew to be their business, their goals, what they wanted. Maybe they've changed the order of how they're going about some conversations, or maybe they've put a few strategies on the front burner and some on the back burner, but they know who they are and they're, they're just so solid. And that gave me a feeling of great confidence and hope for artists who are hanging out during the pandemic. Maybe things have dramatically changed. Don't change who you are. Don't try to become someone different. Adjust to what you can do, but stay the course. I can identify with that in my own business. Um, so, you know, I tell people I'm, I'm recession proof because um, my business, what I do is needed in the worst of times. Uh, I also, reason two is I respond to the market. And reason three is, and the most important reason is I have a long-term vision of where I'm going that takes into account ebbs and flows, hills and valleys, ups and downs in the economy, et cetera. So um, I think you're describing kind of an environment where uh, an artist can be unflappable or unmessable to the degree that they have a long-term blueprint for their career, a long-term plan, knowing, you know, to, to use the old proverb that we're looking at. Uh, always seven lean years, seven fat years, some ebb and flow um, in society that, that it's not new. The belief in a steady state that things shall continue as they have is, is the mistake itself. So, so ideally, we blueprint and we plan for the long term. But that, Carolyn, raises uh, the issue of resources. Um, so when you think about the ability to plan for ups and downs in the long term, it's harder if you're living paycheck to paycheck than it is, for instance, if you have a significant amount of savings. Um, so that's just the purely general economic issue that tends to affect people during a recession. But most of our listeners are running small businesses uh, because if you're an artist, you are an entrepreneur. If you're a creative professional, you are running a small business. We all know that some of the struggles involved with that 
um, include, you know, limited resources, slim tolerance for loss, and then the day-to-day hustle of just making uh, money for today. So is there anything that's, that's all in sort of the con category, the, the negative side of, yep, these are the challenges. What, if anything, is in the pro category of advantages that specifically a creative professional or an artist might have to be unmessable or unflappable for the long term with their art career, despite ebbs and flows? Yeah, one of the things, and you mentioned this yourself, one of the things that I think is a huge advantage for for artists is that they are lean. They can turn on a dime. It's not like you know, they have to retool a whole factory to make a different widget. They can decide today, you know, maybe I'll be making some small works because I believe there's a market for that and I'm going to test this out. And they can make quick moves. They can readjust. They don't need to build huge inventories before they make a move. They're out there in the flow of social media and they're hearing what's going on and they can react quickly they can test things. There are many tools that are online that are completely free to use. So you could keep your budget, you know, uh, pretty, pretty slim as well. Um, but one of, the, one of the things that I would throw out there as, as kind of balancing act with staying the course, you know, keeping your core business goals as they are, to balance that out, you've got to have a little bit of an insight into where are your sales? And as a, a former artist and as a former outside salesperson, I'll tell you, find out where the sales are and go there. So if you're able to really start start a little flurry of sales, say in this particular niche or certain area, well, keep going. Mine that market. You know, keep working that niche until your sales have slowed down or dried up. You know, if there's a place for you to make money, I think you should do it. Of course, artists are out there. Maybe they're offering masks. That's something that's very popular. I'm seeing some artists advertising them, advertising all kinds of ways to buy from them. And they know it's a popular product right now. Is, you know, is that a a good plan? Sure. If that works for you, you know, go ahead and earn some money doing that. Um, even if it's not what you would normally do, I think it's important to get through the pandemic intact. It's certainly my goal that every one of these artists, as a small business person who might be on a limited budget, has a way to get through this period of time without giving up, throwing in the towel, or you know, just feeling so hopeless that they don't know where to turn. Because there are many, many options. We're going to be talking about some of those in the upcoming conference. Yeah, it's funny that you mention um, these kind of side ga- side hustles that artists can do. Um, you know, I think traditionally everybody thinks uh, you can teach, uh, but product-based side hustles, so to speak. Um, I've actually bought, um, during the pandemic, I bought a, um, a copy of the Edgar Allan. I know I can download this free online. I can just pull it up on the web. It's public domain. But I, I bought an Edgar Allan Poe story, uh, The Mask of the Red Death, uh, because I thought I'm going to read that again during the the pandemic, uh, that was done by an artist where it was kind of, you know, the whole little booklet was custom designed and there's like an artistic cover that they've done that I thought was kind of compelling and gothic. And so I got that 
and uh, and I did buy a couple of custom masks. Um, you know, I bought a mask of the Red Death face mask based on Edgar Allan Poe. I thought that was cool uh, for for when I want to be ironic. And I bought, you know, I can't help but watch. You know, Joe Biden has this blue, you know, Democrat blue mask, you know, and it looks so stunning. And I'm like, how did they procure this mask? Did they have a team of seamstresses tying out different blue? You know, what? where did this come from? And uh, and how do I get a mask that's more custom? And so I got a pinstriped mask that, you know, is really refined and looks like I could wear it to a fine dining uh, environment if there was one. But instead, I'm just sort of walking around with it. So I've bought some some different kinds of art produced by artists that I've also bought some traditional art. I, I bought a painting uh, just a couple of weeks ago and, and I did buy a smaller format painting. That's mostly because I'm running out of wall space, <laughs> but not because not because uh, of the pandemic. But I um, I found that, yeah, this stuff's doing a brisk business, um, smaller painting and I and some art products. Uh, and I, I just love the feeling that I get that. Um, Yep, we're still trading. The market is still open. I'm still doing a brisk business with people that are filling my life with beauty and, and good things. It's not just staring at your, your beige walls during the pandemic. And so I want to ask you, um, though, uh, on the theme of staring at beige walls, the Hiscox report, which we, we mentioned a couple of times, we mentioned at the start of the show, you know, it had that quote, the pandemic has exposed an over-dependence on traditional channels. And of course, for instance, it listed art fairs. So I want to ask you about what's happening to art events. So you've been in close touch, Carolyn, with a big group of art fair promoters. How are they managing the transition to fully virtualized or at least hybridized online experience? Or do they have a particular take on artists' livelihoods right now? Wow, that is such a timely question. I, I love that. And by the way, first of all, I really want to see that pinstriped mask. So you'll have to take a picture and send it to me. Um, I'm going to wear it with my pinstripe suit and just walk the streets with my cane and my dog and let people draw their, you know, wow, that's a stylish gentleman. I, I long to be photographed as this this person was seen walking down the streets of Brooklyn the other day. I love that. <laughs> you, I'm sure you'll go viral. I'd love, love to see that. So yeah, back to the art event. This is a huge topic for many artists because a lot of artists are working out on the art fair and festival circuit at different levels and different types of shows and live events, as you know, have tremendously suffered. So we're seeing cancellations, we're seeing postponements, and this has wreaked havoc with a lot of people's income. So what's going on with them? Um, well, first of all, before I get you know into the group that, that I talked with, we do see a lot of big cancellations. For example, Art Basel, which usually takes place, you know, the first week uh, of December, is canceled for this year. Uh, that's a, a, a big announcement. Coconut Grove, huge outdoor festival here in Florida, canceled. Um, others are going on. So, you know, we're seeing this kind of back and forth. I read a very interesting article the other day that uh, a major art fair in Europe, Art Paris, actually took place live. And that was in the middle of September, 2020. They were using social distancing masks and I imagine gloves and cleaning everything and trying to you know, stay as hygienic and safe as possible. Um, normally they get about 56,000 people in their show. That was the, the number at the gate. And they only lost 10% of attendance, even though all of this was going on. They had fewer exhibitors. 
They could only allow 5,000 people in at once. I think there is an enormous craving out there for people to go to physical events. They want to be out. They want to see art. They're starved for, you know, getting away from those beige walls. And so that, that is a, a huge motivation. Now, that doesn't solve the problem of how can we put on shows that actually work. So some shows have gone completely virtual. And if you've been paying attention to what Clark Killings Fund has been doing lately, we've worked with the Indian market to create an online virtual market completely taking place on the internet, which was quite successful. It had about 450 artists participate. And it was really, I think, a kind of a leading edge model for how art shows might go totally virtual. On the other hand, we're seeing shows scaling down in size. We're seeing 10 feet between booths, you know, a control gate and extreme safety measures for live events. Um, and sometimes they're happening simultaneously. So a combination hybrid live and virtual event, I believe is going to be the standard in the future. And uh, the group of, of promoters that I've certainly been in contact with and speaking to, I would say number one, they pretty much agree that you cannot simply bank on having a live event in the future. You need the virtual component and that they're working on this. And there are many different ways that it is brought to life. So there's different platforms that host these. Uh, some are, are doing them through live streaming. Some are doing them through websites. Um, and the other thing that I know for a fact, and I'm very encouraged by this as well, is that hearing promoters talk about the future of the industry and the position that they're in and the position artists are in is that the vast majority of them feel that to preserve the artist business is the number one priority over and above their own shows. And this even goes for for-profit promoters. We need promoters, they need artists, and they know this, and they're doing everything they possibly can to help artists stay in business. I think that's a sign of a healthy community. I think it's good news for the future. And I just want to commend all the people trying to put on an event. It is difficult. And yet they're really rising to the occasion, and they're doing some amazing things. Um, so you know, we'll be sharing a little bit about about what that looks like, you know, in the conference. I'm going to be doing some interviews with people who are doing it. But I know you've been a part of this as well, Daniel. And, you, you know, I know you're a shopper. I know you're a collector. You bought art recently. Uh, you were a big part of putting on the virtual Indian market. Um, so I'm going to flip this podcast around and ask you a question. Did you feel that it was successful for you as a, as a shopper and as an attendee? What did you think of a virtual market? Well, I found it as a shopper, uh, it was very successful. <laughs> I, I have no trouble getting what I want. So, um, yeah. So, and uh, I think artists can always do more. Um, I do think that sometimes there is a passivity to um, presenting one's work 
um, that sort of just pushes the work out onto display and sits back quietly in a chair and hopes someone will buy it. You know, I, I frequent uh, a lot of antique stores and sort of, I don't know what you would call them, curio shops. I don't, not new stuff, but, you know, there's a store on, um, on City Island in New York that um, has sort of vintage toys and things like that. So you can go in there and find a Fred Flintstone glass uh, or a, a, a Tweety bowl and spoon that you might have had as a kid or something. You can find little statues of things. And I just love stuff like that. And I'll, I'll go into antique stores and look at all the, the stuff and I go, yeah, I remember that, you know? Oh, so that's what that looked like. Um, so in those stores, the ones where the person is sort of sitting back, smoking a, a cigarette in the back room and going, let me know if you need anything. Uh, it's a less successful experience than the one where I sort of walk up and pick up something and I'm looking at it and and the person says to me, um, you know, hey, uh, that's from 1912. They only made four of those, you know, and they're like, oh, really? Uh, and it's more engaged. There's a story around it. And so what I find, whether it's a God, a flea market or an art show or a, or a market, is I find I engage more to the extent that the artist engages me. And in a virtual environment, um, it's perhaps even more important because you can't just pop up anytime you want to and start talking to the, the visitor or the user or the browser. And so it's imperative to tell an effective brand story and to communicate um, some sort of narrative around your work that makes me take interest beyond simply the the two-dimensional image. Um, so that that's kind of how I feel. Fairly successful given, you know, what the market is currently like, but needing to evolve to where we're going to have to uh, go if, if as people who love the arts, um, we're going to succeed uh, in creating a, a universally good experience for all parties in digital. Does that make sense? I would totally agree with you. In fact, um, it has a lot to do with what we talked about earlier in this podcast, which is how do you stand out online? People need to pay attention to you. You need to be telling a compelling story. You need to reach out where people are going to say, oh my gosh, look at this. I love this guy. Look what he's doing. His, he really connects with me. I relate to his story. And so, yeah, I think the story is a huge part of it. I think the presentation has to be excellent. And one of the things that this conference has that I think it is it really going for it is helping artists create what we call an action plan. So we're going to be activating people. They're not sitting back online, you know, in the back room saying, hey, let me know if you want something. They're reaching out, speaking out, and in some ways, they are doing astonishing things online through video, through sharing, through using online tools that can give them a huge reach. And it's really amazing what can be done. Uh, of course, it's going to depend on your personality, but you're exactly correct. Every single artist out there needs an incredible story. So don't tell me that your art is unique. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> I want to hear why you make what you make and really engage me with an intriguing concept that we can get into a great conversation about. Yeah, I mean, that's it for, for somebody that buys art and uh, creative things consistently. Uh, 
every, everything is unique, but life is short, you know? So you, we all have friends that say, you got to read this book. You got to read this book. And pretty soon you're like, okay, I have a, an order in which I'm reading the books. I can put you at slot 49 in about two and a half years to read that book. But there's too many books to read them all and they can all be wonderful. And they can all be, you got to read these books and this will change your life. No, no, really. They can all be like that. But the fact is, is that's what rising above is. And that is what filtering is. And that's what, um, you know, a, a crowded market is, is everybody wants to do this. If it was easy, everybody be doing it. Um, but um, you don't you don't make the sale consistently uh, by being uh, unique or special or even good. Um, MoMA did a study that surveyed something like 500 uh, well-known artists, you know, from gosh, you know, Dolly uh, back to Michelangelo and, and came up with kind of an algorithmic uh, data based result that said it wasn't whether they were good. Because there were artists who one, you know, our critics would say are better <laughs> um, that sold less or et cetera. But it, it's how big your your peer network was, how diverse your peer network was. It was how the message traveled that made the difference in consistency of sales. So for me, when I'm browsing, I need something more than here's my stuff. It's, you know, and I almost feel like sometimes, Carolyn, that there is a, a sense in which I'm somehow obligated to buy art because, hey, artists got to make a living and, you know, we're making this art because we need to and want to. And, and so you should just buy it. And, and that's not what motivates buying in any other category. You know, I mean, there are lots of great cars out there. I want an Audi and a Tesla and I'd like a Lamborghini and I would, you know, um, but I can't. I, I need a Porsche, but I can't drive them all. So I got to pick. So uh, not to not to equate those things, but I, I think your message has to, to rise above. And that goes to your peer network, your sales strategy, your brand story, all the components that make a business a business. That's right. It's a it's a well-rounded, you know, foundation. You need all of those things. You need to know where you're going. And and, you know, one of the things that struck me when you were talking about how much you love to buy art and you are a true collector and what you are describing is the experience that people have when they purchase art. They're in love with it. It is more precious, more wonderful, more special, and more meaningful than anything you're going to buy off the rack at the store. Because it was made by someone with love and talent and a purpose. And it's part of, I think, owning uh, you know, a piece of that, that artist's talent. Uh, and that is extremely meaningful. Those collectors will tell your story to other people when they show the art that they bought from you. So there's a real, uh, it's an invisible connection. It is an emotional connection. And I think that once you find collectors, they're going to be your best future customers as well. So repeat sales is extremely important. And you talk about network. I don't think that artists necessarily need a vast, network of people. They could actually have a rather small network of people who truly love what they do and collect on a regular basis from them and keep them going full, full time. So um, it's more or less finding that audience that understands and loves what you do, staying in, in contact with them and, and just, you know, unfolding your story over time with them 
and, and allowing them to be part of your story as well. Uh, I think that's where you truly find a sweet spot. And that's something that's going to transcend the pandemic. It's not going to be a short-term strategy. It's a career strategy. Uh, I want to finish this up asking you about keeping a collector base engaged and a, a little bit about art openings that reach new clientele, et cetera, because uh, that is part of the challenge that the pandemic puts in front of us, but also the need to evolve from an analog to a digital environment or a hybridized environment does anyway. But I just want to say as a, as a finishing comment on that previous bit that, yeah, it frustrates me to no end that I can insure my art. Um, if thieves break in, I mean, the computer in front of me is worth more. Uh, it's, it's an it is the Lamborghini of computers. It is worth more than many of the pieces of art on my wall uh, sold for put together. But it, when thieves, the idea of thieves breaking in, what I worry about is the art. I can get the, I can get the darn Mac Pro again, but the paintings on my wall, like I'll never get that back. And even if insurance covered it, what am I supposed to do? I can buy more art from that artist, but I won't get that piece that I bought that only exists. It's one of a kind and it's on my wall. I, that piece is gone and some jerk has it. And it's supposed to be me, you know? And and so, yeah, that's that's how I feel. And I, I feel that way, not because I saw it one day and had to have it, but I, there was a, uh, there's a relationship, a, a const, it's a constellation. There's a relationship between the art, the artist, their story, the narrative around the or story around the art um, and the piece. And uh, and all of that, you know, if somebody pointed out one and said, tell me about this piece on my wall, I don't just go, I don't know, man, I just saw it and I bought it off the web. I mean, I can talk to them about, yeah, yeah. All right. Let me talk to you about this piece. Here's what the artist was doing, you know. <laughs> and and so, yeah, nothing can pay for that. So um, so in, in short, that's just a way of ad living and, and agreeing. I think what you're describing is you are living with that art. That art is hanging in your office every day. It is part of your regular environment. It's part of what you decide to surround yourself with. And so it reflects what you value. So of course, it's as important, you know, as anything else that's, an, you know, an intimate possession of yours. I think that it is. Yeah, that's why it's here. Although um, that produces a certain kind of dread, because if one day for some reason, I hope this will never happen. I'll never be one of those guys whose name's in the news, what one hopes. But if that happened, they they came into my office and saw all the art on my wall and said, now let's deduce what this guy was thinking. Let's deduce his psychological makeup from this art. I shudder to think what they would come up with. <laughs> it's a bit eclectic, uh, but you know, all of it's a bit unusual. I'll put it that way. Um, all right. So I want to ask you, though, about to stay on track, I want to ask you about um, two things, collectors and art openings. So and these are juxtaposed. When I think about collectors, I think about keeping collectors engaged. I think about maintaining the business I already have um, and, and keeping that flow coming. And when I think about art openings, I think about reaching new audience and uh, expanding the size of my my oeuvre, if you will. So. My questions are this, um, what are you seeing in the way of creative alternatives to traditional art openings now when traditional art openings aren't happening? How does one reach new audience uh, in place of an art opening? Well, I am certainly am seeing artists doing things like Facebook Live and they're inviting you into their studio and they are literally showing you what they're making quite often. They'll show work in progress, 
We also see work in progress on platforms like Instagram. So we're seeing them build the new piece of work. What What is new off the easel or uh, what new sculpture are you creating? Um, I saw a fabulous photograph on Instagram the other day, and it was an open kiln. Uh, and it was a uh, kiln that uh, it was an electric kiln, so that you open the lid and you're looking down into all of the marvelous pieces that have just been fired, about to come out of the kiln. And just it's just like you know opening a treasure chest. So I think that you know as visual artists we have such an advantage because our work is meant to be appreciated visually. It's something we can show through photographs. It's something that, that uh, people can see. Uh, and so, yeah, I would say get on social media, release new bodies of work by announcing them, building up anticipation, maybe rolling them out one at a time so that you can, can gain excitement. Um, now, that might appeal to people who are a new collector or they might appeal to your older collectors. Now, for somebody who's collected from you for a while, it may be that you do something that they love. Maybe you do incredible floral photography that just, you know, rocks their world and they love it. And maybe you want to do some other kind of photography. Well, maybe they're not going to buy photos of old junk cards or something. So I always encourage artists in building their portfolio to work in series and to make collections that make sense together, that work well together, so that you can sell the next piece, rather than having a mishmash of this and that. I think that's just, you know, a, a smart way to build a collection. Uh, but in that way, you can always draw a previous collector back in to see, well, what is next that might go in his office next to that other strange piece he bought from you earlier? Or you know, someone completely new. And when you do evolve to your next new collection or your next look, then you can appeal to the previous collector if they want to go with something new, or you can draw new people in by having that new style and new look that might open up a, you know, an untapped audience. So that's about uh, replacing or uh, an answer to the traditional art opening. Okay, and so the follow-up question then, what about uh, maintaining an, an audience? Uh, in the old days, we might have called this, you know, maintaining one's public. In other words, keeping the collector base engaged. Um, how are artists finding creative ways to maintain relationships with their collectors now? Or is it the same answer? I think in, I think in many ways it is the same answer. How do you present new work to your collector? Well, you're going to need to be in touch with them. It might be that they always saw you at the armory show, you know, every year and they would come and they visit your booth and they would expect to see you and their regular art buyers and, and that's what they enjoy. But this year it's not happening. So, you know, if you have their contact information, their email, their address, their social media profiles, you'll need to reach out either virtually or even maybe a phone call. You know, I think that the personal touch is very appreciated these days. If you've got a collector who feels like they know you, they really like you, 
they appreciate your work and you say, you know, I want to reach out to you because I, I got a new body of work and I haven't shown anyone yet, but you own two of my paintings and I really want to give you first dibs. How about we jump on a Zoom call? How about we, you know, we literally get into a, a face-to-face conversation. I'll show you what I've got. So I, I like the personal outreach. And even though that might be a little bit scary, I think that over time, as you get to know your customer base, that there will be people that you can reach out to. And you'll find that they actually appreciate and love hearing from an artist and love, you know, talking with you. And, and that, that engagement excites them. It's part of the collector experience. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to stop there uh, because we are going to pick up with Carolyn Edland in the next episode and ask her uh, 10 or so more questions that are really important to this topic of virtualizing an art career. Uh, we don't want to give you too much good stuff all in one episode because you you won't be coming back, will you? So stay tuned. Uh, we'll finish up here and we'll see you in part two. You've been listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. Artists, register early to get your virtual seat at the Virtualize Your Art Career Conference, October 19th through 30th. $200 for 10-plus live streaming workshops, vid chats, industry experts, and artist interviews, and plenty of time to network and make important connections, as well as doing a deep dive into the topics Carolyn touched on in this interview. I can't believe that, Carolyn. $200 for 10-plus sessions. I can't get a beer and a bratwurst for that on most days. Now, this show depends on support from listeners like you. Consider giving to this show to keep us broadcasting and bringing you events and guests like these. Click give at our website, clarkhealingsfund.org. And for those desiring to sponsor an episode, you can do that at clarkhealingsfund.org slash go slash sponsor. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Jerry's Artorama. And thank you, Carolyn. It's been really great having you. Thanks, Daniel. It's been a pleasure.